quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday which apparently you're not a fan of the phrase <laughs> hump day. I'm fine with Wednesday. <laughs> the crew just said happy hump day. Happy hump day, everyone. Tell your own what I was saying Sorry. 30 seconds before air. Sorry. Let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, May 17th. North Carolina Republicans overriding the governor's veto and banning abortions after 12 weeks. This deciding vote cast by a former Democratic, a former Democratic, state representative who actually campaigned on abortion rights before switching parties last month. Also in Washington, the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are both touting some progress on the debt ceiling talks. But McCarthy is warning that all sides are still a long way apart as President Biden is cutting down a trip abroad. Also, an Illinois girl missing for six years found in North Carolina, all thanks to the Netflix show Unsolved Mysteries. An employee at a store recognized the now 15-year-old and called the police. The girl is safe this morning and her mother has been arrested for the alleged kidnapping. The Secret Service is investigating how an intruder made his way into U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's home. Despite it being under 24-7 Secret Service protection, a source tells CNN Sullivan confronted the man and believed he was drunk. No one was harmed, thankfully, in this incident. Also, a French superstar set to cowboy up. The San Antonio Spurs won the NBA's draft lottery and the big prize, seven foot four, Victor Wembenyama, the man that many believe is going to be the future of basketball. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, developing overnight, the battle over abortion rights is really playing out in both North Carolina and South Carolina. Republicans in North Carolina overriding the governor's veto and forcing through an abortion ban. Having passed by the requisite three-fifths vote, the House has overridden the governor's veto and the bill becomes law, notwithstanding the governor's objections. So be notified. Part of the yelling you're hearing in the state house there is protesters yelling shame from the balcony above. You see uh, them there under this abortion ban. Most abortions in that state will be illegal after 12 weeks of pregnancy. North Carolina has been a refuge for women seeking abortions in the South. And next door in South Carolina, Democrats are trying to stop a bill that would ban most abortions even earlier than that around six weeks when early cardiac activity is detected. That's before most women even know that they are pregnant. Democrats proposed more than a thousand amendments to drag out the process as long as they could. To me, every minute we're in here fighting this is a minute women can get health care across our state. But this is an issue, while it may be futile, is worth fighting for. We know 
and, and that's why we're not letting it go to a, a ballot, that most people in this state and in the United States want abortion access. Those lawmakers you see there were forced to debate until almost 2 a.m. this morning. They'll be back at it just a few hours from now. It's unclear, of course, how long the entire thing will drag on. Diane Gallagher is live outside the state capitol and neighboring Raleigh, North Carolina. Diane, obviously we're waiting to see what happens once lawmakers are back in session in South Carolina this morning. But North Carolina is where the news was made overnight as they overrode that veto that had been issued by the Democratic governor there. That's right, Caitlin. And Democrats acknowledging at this point they are out of options when it comes to this bill, which is now law here in the state of North Carolina. Instead, Democrats saying they are looking toward 2024. They will use this, they say, to energize people in the state of North Carolina. Uh, but beyond the politics here is the changes that will happen in this state, not just for North Carolinians, but also, as you mentioned, from those around the region. Now, look, we are talking about a slew of changes right now today there are 20-week cutoff for abortions in the state of North Carolina. On July 1st, that will change to 12 weeks with exceptions, uh, some of those including rape and incest victims as well as uh, life-limiting fetal anomaly. Uh, but those have date, those have date uh, cutoffs and exceptions as well. But there's a slew of other changes in this bill, including new regulations, reporting requirements, as well as stipulations and new cutoffs for medication abortion, requiring uh, someone to have multiple in-person appointments. It's those type of details that Democrats on the floor last night and the governor for the past two weeks since this bill was introduced have said that perhaps North Carolinians were unaware of. Republicans called this a compromise, though the Senate leader acknowledged to me last night that compromise was simply within the Republican caucus. Democrats did not participate in the writing of this bill. And Democrats say that this will be dangerous, while Republicans say this is, in their words, quote, mainstream. Diane, thank you very much for that really significant update from North Carolina. We'll keep watching South Carolina today as well. Yeah, they'll be back in just two hours. Also this morning, a Trump-backed candidate is now the winner of the Republican primary in Kentucky when it comes to the governor's race there. The state attorney general, Daniel Cameron, that you see here on the left, beat his DeSantis-backed opponent in a very crowded Republican primary. That's Kelly Craft on the right, who was backed by DeSantis. You might remember, she served as an ambassador in the Trump administration, but she was ultimately endorsed by DeSantis, while Cameron was ultimately endorsed by Trump. During his acceptance speech, Cameron made sure to thank Trump for his support. A big thank you to President Donald J. Trump for his support and his endorsement of this campaign. Let me just say, let me just say, the Trump culture of winning is alive and well in Kentucky. Of course, that's a clear dig to DeSantis, who has been saying that there is a culture of losing, which he blames on the former president. Cameron's win sets up one of this year's most important elections, one of the biggest, the biggest governor's race that we are going to be watching this year. It has implications for 2024. CNN's Eva McKend is live in Louisville, Kentucky. Eva, tell us, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of Republicans who are running to run up against the current Democratic governor, Andy Bashir. Tell us what happened last night. 
Yeah, good morning to you, Caitlin. This was a commanding victory early in the evening, so early. We were at his watch party last night that some of his supporters hadn't even shown up yet to the victory party by time the race was called. And to be clear, there is a historic nature to this. If Daniel Cameron is elected governor, he would be the first black governor of Kentucky. He would be the first black Republican governor in America. And this also showed the enduring influence of former President Donald Trump. Uh, Cameron secured the Trump endorsement early in this contest. It wasn't the only factor in this race, but Trump so popular in Kentucky, he won by more than 20 points in 2020, that it really helped Cameron in this race. And of course, why this matters is because it is going to be a bellwether potentially watching him go up against Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky that we just had on recently. You know, why is this such a race that people are going to be paying such close attention to going into 2024? Yeah, this will be the most watched governor's race in this year. Uh, governor Bashir is extremely popular in this state. Over the weekend, I met a Trump supporter, a Trump voter, who told me he actually likes Governor Bashir. So that is something that Republicans are going to have to contend with. A Republican strategist described Governor Bashir to me as a warm cup of coffee. He does have mass, like a warm cup of coffee, he has uh, mass appeal in this state. But there are more registered Republicans in Kentucky than Democrats. This is a ruby red state. And so Republicans really view this as a prime pickup opportunity. This race is going to receive national attention. Cameron viewed as a rising star in the Republican Party. He spoke at the 2020 Republican convention. He's beloved by Republicans in this state, but also across the country. But uh, he also earned the ire of uh, Democrats for his response and progressives uh, and celebrities in California. We saw that response, too, for uh, his response to the Breonna Taylor case in his capacity as attorney general. So lots of folks going to be watching this race, Caitlin. Yeah, and he previewed what his lines of attack on Bashir are going to look like, talking about crime, fentanyl, culture wars. Eve McKen will continue to check back in with you. Thank you. Yeah, schools as well, our kids, mm -hmm. education. Let's bring in CNN senior political commentator Scott Jennings, who knows Daniel Cameron well. They're friends. He advised him in his 2019 campaign for Kentucky AG. Scott, good to have you. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Hi, I know you're happy with this win. You called it a night of momentum and unity. I just wonder, is it enough momentum to defeat incumbent Andy Bashir. It's gonna be a tough road, no? Yeah, it's gonna be a really interesting race. I suspect the political handicappers will, will look at Kentucky early on as a lean dim. But if you look at the voter registration shifts over the last four years, you look at Cameron's uh, big win last night, and you just look at sort of uh, the flow of the state right now, I think it would be folly to call it anything other than a toss-up uh, because you do have Bashir, who maintains high personal image ratings. That's absolutely true. And you have his party, which uh, maintains very low image ratings in the state. And Republicans here are ascendant, holding every other constitutional office in Frankfurt. So I agree with the assessment. It's going to be the most watched race of the year. Uh, and it's really two young candidates who I think the winner of this race uh, are destined for for national stardom. If, mm. if Bashir were to hold this, he would be, I think, a, a national star for the Democrats. And if Cameron wins, uh, people are going to start talking about his national future as well. Yeah. And of course, Bashir's dad was a, a yeah. two-term governor. Scott, what about the national implications of this in the sense that Trump had endorsed Cameron? He had backed him. DeSantis had quietly backed Kelly, Kelly Craft kind of late into this race. But it is also a proxy war between those two presidential frontrunners. 
I wouldn't overread that, actually. Trump was the central advertising element for Cameron. All of his ads, all of his super PAC ads, all talked about Trump. He ran this race as the Trump candidate. For Kraft, she got DeSantis to do an auto call, so an automated phone call out to voters the night before the election and did a little social media on it the next day. He did not play uh, really a central role in her campaign. This race, uh, in terms of endorsements, really came down to Trump. It was a 12-person race, and Daniel Cameron had Trump uh, early on and really rode that to a huge victory last night on top of the fact that he's uh, also well-liked by other quarters of the Republican Party. But the dominant endorsement here was no question uh, Donald Trump, and it was the only one that factored in really to advertising. I wonder, just given that he's been the attorney general and the rule of law, I would assume, is very important to him, is he going to run in lockstep with, with former President Trump when we hear Trump say things like he did to Caitlin in the CNN town hall you know, last week about pardoning many of the January 6th rioters, et cetera? I mean, is he going to separate himself at all? Because what we heard him say last night is the Trump culture of winning is alive and well in Kentucky. Yeah, I think he said that, uh, obviously, because he's very grateful for Donald Trump for picking him early. I mean, Trump coming in last year, uh, you know, the governor's race wasn't really in cycle yet. And, and Trump delivering that endorsement early on was a huge lift right out of the gate for Daniel Cameron, who, mm-hmm. by the way, was massively outspent by Kelly Kraft. So having Trump helped him fend off all that money. That having been said, the other plank of Daniel Cameron's campaign was, I support law enforcement. He is a pro-law enforcement candidate, and I suspect he's going to continue to do that, and I don't think he's going to peel off of that. So I don't think he's going to make, you know, uh, parsing out uh, this or that position of Donald Trump part of his campaign, but I do think he's going to continue to tout all these hundreds of law enforcement officers uh, that have come to his uh, uh, side uh, in his primary. Well, and speaking of Trump and the national issues, you know, we're watching what's happening in North Carolina overnight. We're watching what's happening in South Carolina this morning. We're also seeing Trump, Pence, DeSantis all being asked questions about abortion. I want you, Scott, to respond to what Governor DeSantis said about what Trump said on abortion and what former Vice President Mike Pence said about it as well. He didn't give an answer about, uh, would you have signed the heartbeat bill that Florida did, that had all the exceptions that people talk about? Uh, for my part, I, I disagree with President Trump about the heartbeat bill. I certainly support what uh, Florida passed. How's this going to affect 2024 and where voters are coming down on, on Trump, on Pence, on DeSantis, on any of these candidates that are weighing in on this? Yeah, the, uh, I mean, obviously pro-life activists and pro-life voters play a huge role in determining Republican primaries, whether it's for president or dog catcher. Pro-life voters vote, and they really do matter to the party. That's number one. Number two, Trump has got his record of having appointed pro-life judges and Supreme Court justices, but at the same time, he's been a little squirrely about where he comes down in a post-Roe world. You see DeSantis and Pence really leaning in to the post-Roe world, and we're in the middle of, of the Federalist experiment right now. The whole point of Getting rid of Roe for a lot of people like Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis was it goes back to the states and then the states can make decisions. And you're seeing varying kinds of laws passed depending on those states. So they're going to lean into that. I think they're going to find favor uh, in that inside the Republican Party. And, and this is a central sort of you know, conservative ideological question. Do you want there to be a national standard or do you want this to be a purely federalist uh, argument that plays out over the next couple of years where individual state legislatures Uh, have to act. Obviously, for Ron DeSantis, as a governor, he just signed a bill. You're seeing bills passed in other states. That's where his heart is. 
Uh, you can tell Trump's not quite comfortable with that. I think this is actually going to be a central part mm -hmm. of how people go towards uh, or go at Donald Trump in these debates if he if he shows up for them in the fall. Yeah, we'll see if he does. Yeah. Scott Jennings, I know you're up late last night watching this race. Thanks so much for getting up early for us. Thank you all. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. All right, we're tracking some other big races on the local level. A stunner in Jacksonville, Florida, most Jacksonville, Florida's most populous city. A Democrat has flipped the mayor's office. Former journalist Donna Deegan will become the city's first female mayor. This is only the second time in 30 years that a Democrat has won that office. In Philadelphia, CNN project Sherelle Parker will be the Democratic nominee for mayor. The former city council member will instantly emerge as an important national political player among Democrats. President Joe Biden is counting on Philly to deliver a big turnout as he seeks re-election. Parker will face Republican David O. The Parker win, if Parker wins, I should say, she'll be the first woman to serve as mayor of Philadelphia as well. Yeah, a lot of key races coming out of last night. Also in news in Washington, President Biden has just postponed the second part of his trip to Asia. He is scheduled to leave today. That comes after yesterday's meeting with Kevin McCarthy on the debt ceiling. We'll tell you the latest on where those talks stand. And a frustrating eruption in New York City as Frustration erupting in New York City as parents protest the city's sheltering of migrants in school gyms. You're not gonna do this to us. You picked the wrong neighborhood and the wrong school. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Get a good picture of all of us. We're having a wonderful time. Everything's going well. <laughs> Manifest To be a fly on the wall. Progress. He hopes. They hope. This morning, President Biden heads to Japan for the G7 summit. His overseas travel was supposed to be a week-long trip with stops in Papua New Guinea and Australia. But now the president is canceling those two visits because he needs to get home to deal with the debt ceiling. And those talks are let signs live at the White House with more. I'm just sad for you. <laughs> You're not going to get to go on those no. legs of the trip. But hey, a national, you know, pending crisis call. She's like, thanks a lot. I know. Yeah, I'll stay back to cover those talks that are expected to continue uh, throughout the coming week. But President Biden yesterday really expressed some confidence that they would be able to make progress towards averting a default. But both sides emerged from that meeting yesterday without any clear path forward on how to avert a default for the first time in U.S. history. But these talks are starting to enter a new phase. President Biden has appointed uh, two to top aides here at the White House to start and lead those discussions with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's office. That includes the counselor to the president, Steve Roschetti, a longtime aide, also the OMB director, Shalonda Young, uh, who has a long history up on Capitol Hill working in the appropriations sector, as well as Louisa Terrell, who has been the uh, legislative affairs director here at the White House. They will be negotiating with Congressman Garrett Graves, a Republican who McCarthy has picked for these talks to play out. This is something that uh, many had hoped might uh, be a next step in the formal talks, as they some were hoping that they would be able to shrink the room of those conversations. But still, there are so many issues where the White House and McCarthy remain incredibly far apart. They still need to figure out what exactly the length for a debt ceiling raise would be, uh, how long they would agree to when it comes to spending caps. And one of the key sticking points is that issue regarding work requirements for some social safety net programs. McCarthy says, including those 
will be a red line for him. But the White House pushed back in a new statement last night, saying that President Biden will be fighting against any type of restrictions that would eliminate health care or push people into poverty. So that, that's one of the key areas to be watching uh, in the coming days. Definitely a key area and interesting because he had seemed open to it just over the weekend when he was That's talking. That's right. And then they had to sort of the White House came in to clarify. Yeah, because you saw progressive Democrats not happy about it. Mm-hmm. Or let, as uh, Poppy was noting, you're not going on. The, he's not going on the second half of this trip, which is supposed to be to Australia, a historic first trip to Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's a critical area at a critical time as the U.S. is working to counter China's influence. So what is the White House saying about the impact that these domestic issues at home are having on his foreign policy? Well, this clearly is not the ideal situation for the White House. But in just a few hours, President Biden will be departing, going as planned to Hiroshima, Japan, for the G7 summit. But it's the back half of that trip, Papua New Guinea and Australia, that has been canceled. Australia is where he was supposed to meet with the Quad leaders. Uh, The White House has said that many of those leaders will be on hand at the G7 summit. Of course, one of the issues that they had been hoping to discuss was countering China's influence in the region. And now, uh, with this threat of a death ceiling, that's also just not exactly a good look, especially as a a potential default would not have just ramifications here in the United States, but also on the world stage. Yeah. And he's going there without a deal on that. We'll see what he says to those G7 world leaders. Arlette, thank you so much. And we're also going to speak with the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, about this and much more. She'll join us live in the next hour. Also this, a young girl abducted nearly six years ago has been found thanks to a Netflix series. That's right, we'll tell you how. Just an amazing story. Also, parents here in New York City are trying to block officials from using school gyms to house migrants. We're gonna talk to some of those parents next. Angry parents protesting outside of New York City schools in an effort to try to block city officials here from using school gyms to house migrants. No shelters on school grounds. No shelters on school grounds. These parents say that they are worried about their students' safety and the living conditions for the migrants as well. These protests are coming as CNN has learned that hundreds of asylum seekers have already been placed in school gyms across the city. That's according to what a source told CNN, a source who is dealing with the planning process here. CNN's Polo Sandoval spoke to parents in New York City about why they're so frustrated. We want our gym back. We want our gym back. We want our gym back. Outrage, anger, and frustration. Parents protesting outside of Brooklyn school in response to the city's plan to continue housing migrants inside current and former school gymnasiums. You're not going to do this to us. You picked the wrong neighborhood and the wrong school. Some upset parents and grandparents refused to drop off their kids at school after learning of the situation. I'm taking them home. Why should they be in there with those adults? Those are men and women. We don't know where these people come from. Mayor Eric Adams, who says New York City is in the middle of a humanitarian crisis, says the city is considering using 20 school gyms for migrants as New York City sees an increase in asylum seeker arrivals. None of us are comfortable with having to take these drastic steps. Adam says all these gyms are separate buildings and the migrants would not interact with school children. We have a order, almost an order of where we have to go as the crisis continues. Uh, This is one of the last places we want to look at. Parents argue school gyms are not meant for housing. I would like other 
other places to be considered, um, places that have adult full-size showers, large spaces. Our school is tiny. We can barely fit in it as it is. A source familiar with the planning process telling CNN that so far about 300 migrants have been placed in gyms throughout the city. We have a crisis that's been brought to our country, our state, our city, and now it's in our schools and how soon it's until it's in our homes. These children deserve better. Some parents feel that schools should be off limits, while others just fear for the safety of their kids. We're not knowing nothing about these people and where they came from. We want to protect us. My message for the mayor and the governor, y'all should be ashamed of yourself. Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso says parents are basing most of their opinions on fear and says that the migrants are not increasing crime in New York City. These folks have not caused in any way, shape or form an influx or an increase in crime. So this narrative about safety is just one that, that is, 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 is being made up right now. These parents, again, I think are misinformed. And amid an ongoing battle between the suburbs and the city of New York, officials in Orange County, New York, a short drive from here, have secured a restraining order preventing the Eric Adams administration from voluntarily offering some relocation to some of the migrants here to those communities. But look, the reality here, guys, is whether you're the mayor of some of these towns, the schools here in New York, or the mayor himself, they are facing a very difficult reality. And that's regardless of what I witnessed on the border just a few days ago, which is a dramatic decline in apprehensions, there are still... Uh, hundreds of asylum seekers in transit arriving here by several hundred a day. Yeah, it's a really important context. Polo, thank you for reporting from the border to New York City and how this is affecting everyone. Also, former New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson is going to join us live in the 8 a.m. hour to talk about what Polo is reporting on there and more. Also, this a young girl featured in the Netflix series Unsolved Mysteries has been found nearly six years after she disappeared. Kayla Unbeun went missing in Illinois when she was just nine years old. Her dad had full custody, but she was with her mom when she disappeared. On Saturday night in Asheville, North Carolina, more than 600 miles from her home, a stranger spotted her. She's now 15 years old, by the way, in a store and recognized her from this image that aired at the very end of the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Our Jean Casares has been following all of it and joins us. Oh, My goodness. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So here are the facts, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It was July of 2017. It was South Elgin, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. And Kyla's father, Ryan, had gotten from a judge. He had ordered full custody. Her mother had supervised visitation. So on July 5th, right after 4th of July, her father goes to pick her up from a camping trip with her mother. She's not there. Her mother's not there. And so for several weeks, they had to have been looking everywhere. Finally, on July 28th, a felony arrest warrant for kidnapping was filed in the court. And Kyla was one of America's missing. For six years, she was gone. It was last Saturday night. And someone in a store in Asheville, North Carolina, 600 miles away, they saw her. And they went to the store authorities and said, that, that little, that girl, I saw her on Netflix's missing show. They called the police. The police came. The mother was found, arrested, on charges, $250,000 bail. Now, two things. First of all, the Netflix show, Unsolved Mystery, she was on for four seconds on that That's show. It. But the mother has made bail the mother is out. She's free, told to show up in court on July 11th. So the wow. thinking is that potentially the mother took her. 
The allegation is the allegation. That. It's alleged taking of a child and is across state lines. Kyla yeah. united with her father. Her father asked for their privacy. They're getting to know each other again. They're back in Illinois. Jeez. Amazing how just those four seconds makes like, such, a, show big makes such it, a difference. I remember watching it growing up. It wasn't on Netflix at the time. Right. Yeah. Of course. Jean, thank you. You're very welcome. much. Jean. Also, another investigation is underway, this time in Washington, after an intruder broke into the home of President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, despite the fact that he has 24-7 Secret Service protection. Yeah, we're seeing way too much of this happen. And the Capitol Police chief warns of a 400% spike in threats to members of Congress over just the last six years. 400%. What is behind this increase and what's being done about it? That's amazing. The Secret Service is investigating how an intruder snuck into the White House, White House's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's home without agents noticing. It happened late last month at his home in Washington, D.C. And we should note this is particularly concerning since Sullivan has 24-7 security detail. But a source says agents stationed outside didn't notice the intruder. The source also says Sullivan actually found the person inside his home can you imagine that confronting him and later told investigators he believed that person was drunk? The intruder did not threaten him and apparently left without, again, Secret Service spotting him. An agency spokesperson released a statement saying, quote, we are taking this matter seriously and have opened a comprehensive mission assurance investigation to review all of the facts of what occurred. Yeah, the fact that it was Jake Sullivan who had to tell the Secret Service that someone had broken into his home. And that he had to confront that person. Yeah, yeah, not a shining moment for them at all. That intrusion comes as not just what's happening there. There are threats against government officials and politicians that we have seen increase on a dramatic scale. The Capitol Police chief told lawmakers yesterday that threats against members of Congress have actually jumped 400 percent in just the last six years alone. CNN's Lauren Fox took a look at this in reports from Capitol Hill. Just one day after an attack at Congressman Jerry Connolly's district office, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger telling a House committee about the alarming rise in threats against lawmakers. It's gone up over 400 percent over the last six years. Several lawmakers on Capitol Hill are now reviewing their district security protocols after a man with a bat attacked two staffers Monday at Representative Jerry Connolly's district office in Fairfax, Virginia. It's a sad commentary if we now have to accept as a price of public service threats to everybody associated with us. Some members of Congress now looking toward ways to enhance security at their district offices. We need to be proactive about these things, not reactive. We just have to be, you know, extra cautious. There's no room for political violence in our country. Manger's testimony cited recent attacks on members of Congress and their families, like the assault in late October on then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, part of the incident captured on this police body cam video. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. Hey, 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 hey. What is going on right now? I'm not getting an answer on call other examples that have shaken lawmakers include an attack on former Congressman Lee Zeldin at a campaign event during his run for governor last July. Police say the suspect had a weapon. Zeldin wasn't injured. And earlier this year, a man attacked Congresswoman Angie Craig in the elevator of her Washington, D.C. apartment building. According to police, Craig tossed her hot coffee on the attacker to defend herself. 
Manger believes two things are causing the rise in threats to safety. The uh, proliferation of, of uh, use of social media and the um, just the increasingly uh, the increasing divide in our country politically um, has a lot to do with it and a lot to do with the increase in threats. And the challenge for lawmakers is they want to be accessible to their constituents. A lot of these district offices are frequently visited by members of Congress. They want to go out and meet with constituents in public. They want to be able to be accessible. And that is the concern that so many of them say they just don't feel like they can ever be truly safe in this job anymore. Caitlin and Poppy? Yeah, it's a real concern for them. Lauren Fox, thanks for taking a look at that. Yeah, I'm so glad you did that reporting. Mm -hmm. um, ahead, this, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, the company you should know about because they're the company behind ChatGPT. Well, he told lawmakers yesterday in his testimony, it's time to regulate artificial intelligence. Will they? And what he says is his worst fear. Also, Elon Musk also made some big headlines in his latest interview as he weighed in on China and Taiwan and revealed what he really thinks, what he really, really thinks about working from home. You want to share what you have to say? I'll say what I want to say. And if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. That is Elon Musk in just a remarkable, stunning, eye-opening interview. Uh, one of the things he said that he didn't care if he loses money over inflammatory tweets that draw the ire of Tesla shareholders or Twitter advertisers. His interview made a lot of headlines from his views on AI to his recent attacks on George Soros and insisting that the mass shooter in Texas at that outlet mall who posted photos of large swastika tattoos is not a white supremacist. Watch this. When you link to somebody who's talking about the guy who killed children in a mall in, in Allen, Texas, and you, you say something like it might be a bad psyop, I'm not quite sure what you meant, but... but I'm saying that I thought this, the, 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 the ascribing it to white supremacy was... There's no proof, by the way, that he was not. There's no I, I would say that there's no proof that he is. And that's a debate you want to get into on Twitter? Yes. Because we should not be ascribing things to white supremacy uh, if, if, they're, if it's false. You basically... It reminds me of Magneto, which is like, you know, calm down, people. This is not like made a, like a federal well, you case out of it. You, also, you, know, <laughs> you said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity. Like, when you do something like that, do you Yeah, think I think about... that's true. That's my opinion. Really, you're going to work from home and you're going to make everyone else who made your car come work, to the work in the factory? You're going to make the people who make your food that gets delivered, that they can't work from home? The, you know... The, the, the people that, that come fix your house, they, they can't work from home, but you can? Does that seem morally right? I think it's, it's, it's very much a double-edged double sword. I think in, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a strong probability that it will make life much better uh, and that we'll have an age of abundance. Um, and, and there's some chance that it goes wrong um, and uh, destroys humanity. Hopefully that chance is small, but it's not zero. Let's bring in Kara Swisher. She has covered Elon Musk extensively since the late 90s, had many in-depth interviews with him. Her podcast is on with Kara Swisher and also Pivot. Kara, I just think about your most recent hey, interview. Coffee. Hey, with Elon Musk, what, was it a little over a year ago at such a pivotal time? What do you make of this one? Mm -hmm. And that, those are just some of the key snippets we played for folks. 
Well, Dave did a very good job getting a lot of news out of him, except most of the news was nonsense, unfortunately, especially the stuff about the white supremacists and calling Bellingcat, which does a lot of interesting investigative work. Uh, uh, is it FISOPS or whatever? It's, it's, you know, he spewed a lot of conspiracy theories, FIOPs, whatever. Yeah. Um, he, he, he spewed a lot of conspiracy theories. He made a lot of pronouncements on things. Um, calling staying home uh, morally wrong, although I don't feel like we should be taking moral lessons from Elon, but okay. Um, you know, essentially the guy who makes cars wants us to commute. Great. Thank you for that. I don't know. <laughs> it was just bizarre. And, 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 you know, and sandwiched in between that was, you know, some interesting ideas, but he seems to talk a lot now um, and spew on things that he doesn't, we shouldn't really be listening to him about. Although Dave did a great job, as I said. He did, he did do a great job. I was just thinking, do you think he gets away with a lot in terms of, just because so many people have dubbed him a genius, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that. I, he's brilliant. But I, I don't know. I just feel mm -hmm. like people don't hold him to the same standards that they hold other, certainly other CEOs to at all. Well, a lot of people do. The companies he's involved or with company doesn't. He controls most boards. of them, so it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the. They, they like being on the gravy train of Elon Musk, and until, and, and until he doesn't make money for him, until he loses money, not just for himself and his other shareholders don't seem to care in the private companies, um, it's not going to matter. And, of course, Tesla's been an enormous financial success for those holding its stock, although it's under a lot of uh, uh, pressure right now. Um, he's still going to be tolerated until that changes. And I don't know why it is with this particular person, because a lot of other people make a lot of money for people and don't behave like this. Yeah. Um, but until we stop looking, um, they're going to keep he's going to keep doing this because he likes the attention. Well, and Kara, to your point about what he said about the Texas shooter, which was essentially calling it BS, the links to yeah. white supremacy, even though the shooter had a swastika tattooed on him. The Texas Department of Public Safety ha has confirmed that he, he, they yeah. do believe he had these neo-Nazi ideologies that he had at least posted about. But you couldn't ignore Elon Musk talking about that, criticizing Bellingcat, which does great investigative journalism. But then his comment in a separate part of the mm -hmm. interview that was unrelated where he said, I, I want to say what I want, even if it loses me money. Yeah, he doesn't care. Well, it's his money when he's losing it. And in, in regards to Tesla, it's shareholders' money, actually. But he, that's how he feels, and it is his money. And he, if he wants to do that, he can certainly do that. He's paying a lot of money for those views. Um, of course, he's just hired someone who's good at making money, uh, Linda Yaccarino, and she's going to spend a lot of time pushing back his comments and you know, slowly diminishing her reputation, unfortunately. She has a terrific reputation in the ad industry. And so if you're trying to attract ads, you know, saying someone who's wearing obvious Nazi tattoos is not, doesn't have white supremacist views is unusual, I would say, and unusual for a CEO and leader. But he seems to want to do it, and he's willing to pay the price for it. And it's, it's of course, his money uh, that we tolerate it. I don't know what we can do uh, Caitlin, I don't, I mean, what are we, what are we going to do? Tell him not to be so ridiculous. I, it, I think we do Actually, that. Actually, I think really it's matter. good journalism. I think it's accountability. I think it's yeah. like the interview you did. I think Dave Faber did a really good job mm -hmm. with that interview because then you allow people to see who right. the person is and then they can make their own decisions. On some level. Yeah. Yeah. On some level, although some of this stuff gets, you know, people who really believe it is, you know, you know, go Elon, say those things about conspiracy theories. Yeah. There's a lot of arguments to be said that this that this continues to get into the bloodstream of the public and it becomes, you know, you know, if he converts one person to thinking 
someone not, again, wearing swastikas seems to be an indication of white supremacist views, in my humble opinion, and I think most people would think that, including, as you said, Caitlin, the Texas Department of Public Safety. Thank you very much, Kara, getting up extra early for us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Home, Home Depot had a three-year run of robust sales, right? People did a lot of home improvement during the pandemic. So why is it now saying people are really pulling back on that? That's next. Plus, Senator Dianne Feinstein's interview with reporters raises questions and alarm bells. The exchange where she denied her absence from the Senate, which was widely reported. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, Steve Scalise, a top Republican, says that the House could take up a resolution to expel George Santos, the freshman Republican congressman, and noted a notorious liar as soon as tonight. The vote is expected to be on referring the matter to the House Ethics Committee. That is something that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said last night he wants to happen, quote, rapidly. I think we can look at this very quickly and come to a conclusion on what George Santos did and did not do through ethics, a safe bipartisan committee. I would like the ethics committee to uh, move rapidly on this. The ethics committee announced an investigation back in March looking into whether George Santos engaged in unlawful activity related to that 2022 congressional campaign that was filled with lies. Santos was also indicted last week on 13 federal criminal charges, including wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and making false statements to the House. Also this, CNN This Morning continues right now. Lawmakers in North Carolina voting to ban most abortions after 12 weeks, overriding a veto by the state's Democratic governor. We seek to balance protecting unborn babies while ensuring the safe care of mothers. When women's health is on the line, I will never back down. President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy called debt ceiling negotiations productive. The president selected two people to directly negotiate with us. It's one of those experiments like taking a wander with your eyes closed in traffic. Default is a disaster. Full stop. Artificial intelligence is moving so fast, it can baffle even the people creating it. There's some chance that it goes wrong and destroys humanity. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. Are we going to see any action being taken? That is the question. A high school teacher using the N-word in a Missouri classroom. A 15-year-old student suspended for three days over the recording. They're protecting the status quo more than they are encouraging the students to apply critical thinking skills. The number one pick in the 2023 NBA draft goes to the San Antonio Spurs. Welcome in perhaps the greatest draft prospect in NBA history. It's a really special moment I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. I'm trying to win a ring ASAP, so be ready. Be ready. Ready. That's going to be really fun to watch him in the league. Also, that's a good message, not just for them, but also uh, for Washington. Uh, yeah, <laughs> get ready because the clock is running out on something a lot less fun, but critically important to all of you, and that is the debt ceiling and raising it. The president, President Biden, is now cutting a major foreign trip short as the pressure builds to try to reach a deal with Republicans by June 1st and prevent economic calamity. It comes after another round of talks with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders yesterday. I did think this one 
was a little more productive. We're a long way apart, but what changed in this meeting was the president has now selected two people from his administration to directly negotiate with us. President Biden is still heading to Japan. He leaves today for the G7 summit, but the White House is scrapping plans to visit Australia and a historic first-time stop in Papua New Guinea. It was a trip that was supposed to showcase America's power against China, so critical in that region. Yeah, absolutely. And President Biden is apparently trying to bring some levity to the tense congressional meeting he had with leaders, a rare meeting where Kevin McCarthy was in the Oval Office. Get a good picture of all of us. We're having a wonderful time. Everything's going well. <laughs> Why did we decide that? Joining us now is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Karine, thanks for being here. I think the big question that me. everyone has this morning is whether or not an agreement can be reached by June 1st. What do you think? Well, the president said yesterday that he's optimistic as it relates to the budget, that we can come to a responsible bipartisan budget on spending, on appropriations, how we move forward, how do we see the value of this country. So he said that yesterday. And he made clear as well, and we, we have said this, that the meeting yesterday was productive, uh, but it was also direct on how America is going to pay its debt and not default for the first time. So those are the two conversations that they had. Uh, again, the president has said he directed his team, his staff, to continue uh, to have that those meetings so we can get to a place where there is a budget uh, on his desk. And he's going he's looking forward to speaking to uh, the congressional leaders later this week on the phone and seeing them once he returns uh, from his overseas trip. And we're told our let's reporting that the team of emissaries met last night. Do you know when they are set to meet again? I don't have a, a set time on when they're going to meet again. As you know, they've been pretty much meeting on a daily basis. It's been productive. And so we expect uh, that to continue. But again, the president is optimistic. Look, as you know, uh, Caitlin, we have said this over and over again. The president has said this. We are not a deadbeat nation. Uh, we pay our debts. This is something that Congress should do. They have done this 78 times since 1960. So as it relates to the debt limit, that is something that we can do. The president on March 9th put forth his budget, it was very clear. He showed the value that he sees when it relates to the American people, how to be fiscally responsible. Three trillion dollars cutting in the deficit by over 10 years uh, and making sure that we get rid of that wasteful spending when it comes to big oil uh, companies, when it comes to uh, big pharma, cutting that down, those, the, that wasteful spending. And so that's what the president had put forth. And now we're having that discussion with on the budget, how to move forward in a bipartisan way, in a responsible way. And that's what you've been seeing from this president from the last couple of days. How long does the president want this debt limit hike to last? Does he want it to go into 2025? Look, I'm not going to negotiate from here. As you can understand, this, these conversations are currently happening on the staff level. As you saw, the president met with the four congressional le leaders. I'm just not going to do that uh, from here. This is something that needs to get done as it relates to the debt limit as soon as possible. We have to get this done. As you know, Caitlin, as well, This, if we do not deal with the debt limit in the way that Congress has dealt with it 78 times if, since 1960, it could trigger a recession. We could lose millions of jobs. All of the successes that we've seen in the last two years from this president with 12.7 million jobs, unemployment at historic lows, that could be wiped away. We think about our retirement accounts. That could devastate retirement accounts. So that's what the president uh, is, has made clear. He's head, held the line on this when it comes to Congress acting and doing what is their constitutional duty. 
And there appear to be some areas where they do agree. I know the White House has said initially they were not going to negotiate on this. But, of course, these negotiations are now happening behind the scenes. It seems there's some agreement on the caps of the spending, the undesignated COVID funds. But when it comes to the stricter work requirements that Republicans say they want to be part of this, is that something that the White House is open to doing? So look, and here's the reality of this. Here, here are, are the facts. The Republican proposals, they want to cut health care. They want to increase, increase poverty. And it's not going to save much money. And these are the same proposals that they had tried to pass when there was a unified Republican government, if you will, and they couldn't get it done then. And so look, not going to negotiate from here. The president is, 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 is hoping and is optimistic that there will be a responsible uh, bipartisan and budget that would be on his desk that he that we can move forward with. I understand you say you're not going to negotiate from here, but this is an important point because over the weekend, the president spoke publicly about this. He seemed open to potentially agreeing to something on this. We heard Kevin McCarthy say yesterday he feels it's a red line, but then we have Democrats saying that they believe it's ridiculous that that would be at the center of the negotiations. That's what Dick Durbin said. Ro Khanna is saying he's, he would have a very hard time voting for something that has work requirements. So I do think it's important to note whether or not stricter work requirements are on the table here. Well, look, when it comes to SNAP uh, and other programs like that, Work requirements have been the law since 1990, something that the president voted when he was a senator. So that has been in place for some time, has been law. And I just stated, I just laid out what the Republicans' proposals are, which is an increasing poverty, which is make the proposal actually doesn't save much money, and taking away health care from millions of Americans. That is something that the president is not for. Look, we're going to continue, uh, we're going to, continue uh, to, to work towards a bipartisan, reasonable budget that the president can see, can get that can get to the president's desk that he can sign. That's what that's what his team is working toward. That's the conversation that he's had with congressional leaders and also holding the line very firmly on what Congress needs to do, which is increase the debt limit. We've been very clear about that. The president has been very clear about that. We're not a deadbeat nation. This is something that is the Congress constitutional duty that has been done 78 times since 1960. The president, as you know, you're set to leave with him to go to Japan in just a few hours from now, also had to cancel scheduled trips to Papua New Guinea and Australia. Critical visits at a critical time as the U.S. is working to counter China's influence. Is the president concerned that domestic politics are undermining his foreign policy? So, as you stated, Indo-Pacific uh, is incredibly important. That's why we have the Quad. That's why we continue to to grow that relationship and continue that relationship. Uh, and it is critical, right, as we look at uh, the the, uh, the Americans' role uh, globally. But the all the message too is that uh, you know America. Americans do not default. America does not default on its debt. That's why the president is cutting his, short, his trip short. Uh, that's why he's going to return, continue these conversations that he's had with congressional leaders as, as he's directed his staff to continue their daily uh, conversation. He's optimistic. He's optimistic that we'll get to a reasonable bipartisan budget deal that can get to his deck that he can sign. But again, America does not default. So this is something that Congress needs to act on as it relates to the debt limit. And he's going to stand He's going to continue to stand firm on that. And, Karine, before we let you go, let's talk about what happened in North Carolina last night, where you saw the Republican supermajority there vote to override the veto from the Democratic governor when it comes to that abortion bill, basically banning abortions after 12 weeks, most of them in the state of North Carolina. I was struck by the statement the White House put out just because it seems that we've seen this successive 
part of issuing of statements from the White House on abortion restrictions that are happening all across the United States. So look, we've been very clear here. We've been seeing from, as you, sta as you stated, uh, state houses, Republican majority state houses continuing to push uh, these, uh, these restrictive laws on women's health care, women's decision on their own body. We've been very clear. The Biden-Harris administration is going to continue to fight uh, for women's health care, for women's reproductive right. That stands. We've been saying that for, for several months now since, uh, Dobbs, since the Dobbs decision was done just last June, which is almost a year. And we've put we put in some processes in place to make sure that women, uh, women's health care are protected. Look, the president has also been clear uh, that we need to make sure that Roe becomes a law of the land. And he's also called on Congress to do just that. But we've called out these horrific bills across the country. We'll continue to do that. A woman should decide uh, what, they, what she wants to do with all her own health care. That should be a private decision uh, that she should be making with her and her family and her doctor. And that's, we've been very clear on that and we'll and we'll continue to fight uh, for uh, women to have that freedom. Karine Jean-Pierre, thank you for making time for us before you head to Japan with the president. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, Caitlin. Now to this, there are questions surrounding Senator Dianne Feinstein. After her brief exchange yesterday with reporters on the Hill, the Democrat recently returned after an extended absence from Capitol Hill, recovering from shingles. So a reporter asked the 89-year-old lawmaker how she's been received by her colleagues since she returned to Washington. Let me read you the exchange. It was not on camera, but here it is verbatim. Quote, what have I heard about what, she asked, about your return, the reporter replied. I haven't been gone, she said. You should. I haven't been gone. I have been working. You've been working from home. Is that what you're saying? The reporter asked. No, I've been here. I've been voting. Please either know or don't know. Close quote. CNN has reached out to Feinstein's office for comment. No word back. But joining us now is Benjamin Oreskes. He is one of the reporters that asked those questions. He's a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. So you were there. We weren't there. Is there nuance missed in what I just read? I mean, no, uh, I think that there, you know, given the ample amount of reporting that we've seen in outlets like my outlet, San Francisco Chronicle, The New Yorker about, you know, her memory loss, uh, her struggles to keep up, uh, you know, an intense schedule that a, a senator requires. You know, we felt it was important to put this out into the world. You know, obviously there's a charitable interpretation of this. You know, she's been back for a week. Maybe she thought I was, you know, talking about the last week, but, you know, given what has been reported and ha had been reported over the last couple of years, uh, it sort of seemed in line with that. And, and you know, this is someone who, whose absence was felt, uh, you know, deeply by her colleagues, uh, partially because they're close to her and also because it made the work of government more difficult. And, and sort of seeing her in one of the brief moments, she's been pretty shielded from reporters. You know, we were trying to show what she is like right now. We don't get a lot of opportunities to hear her talk. Uh, this was important for that reason. Did her office say anything after this exchange happened? Did they try to clarify what she was saying? Have you heard anything from them? Uh, no, is the short answer. We reached out to them. Uh, you know, we, we told them what we were going to say. We all have audio of it. And, you know, we, there were multiple staffers with her at that moment. And they had nothing to say after, you know, after we went to them. Senator uh, Blumenthal has been a really vocal voice speaking in support of her and her return, saying essentially she's fully capable of doing her jobs. I wonder if you're hearing the same from the rest of her Democratic colleagues in private. 
I, it, it's a mix. I mean, obviously, you know, we have been reporting on this story from D.C. And, and from California where there's an incredible amount of anxiety. We you have to remember her seat uh, is open. She, you know, people are three people are running. Three prominent Democrats are running. Uh, it, it definitely from her colleagues in D.C., they are confident that she can vote and they're happy to have her back. And, and they sort of say she's the master of her own fate. Uh, she's in control of her own health decisions. And if she feels like she's healthy, mm-hmm. she, sh- she should be here. Benjamin Oreskes, thank you very much. And you said you have the audio, right? So people could go and listen for themselves. OK. Yeah. All right. We'll try to play that for people later. Thank you very much for Thanks, your reporting. Benjamin. Also, a new study that was released overnight on the rising rate of depression in the United States. Numbers that you'll want to see. Yeah, meanwhile, Dwayne The Rock Johnson opening up about his own mental health struggles. That's all ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know what mental health was. I didn't know what depression was. I just knew... I didn't want to be there, wasn't going to any of the team meetings, wasn't, uh, you know, participating in anything. Years later, I went through it again when I got a divorce, mm. didn't know what it was. Yeah. Years later, around 2017 or so, went through a little bit. Really? But knew what it was at that time, and luckily at that time I had some friends who I could lean on. That is The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, opening up in a very candid way about his own battle with depression on a recent episode of The Pivot Podcast. He's not alone, though. A new Gallup survey that was just released this morning actually shows 29% of adults have been told by a doctor or a nurse they have depression, and 18% of those adults are currently being treated for it. Joining us now to talk about that report is clinical psychologist at NYU, uh, NYU Health, Dr. Rebecca Berry. Thank you so much for being here. I think Poppy and I are both so struck by these numbers. And, mm-hmm. you know, hearing it from a celebrity, hearing him talk about it, I think is important. But it is something that everyone seems to be dealing with, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. These are very high numbers. And interestingly, we have seen a growing trend in the rates of depression in adults, also our young people as well. And it's, in, you know, it's, it's, you know, prominent to see it displayed here for us to re- talk about. And I'd love to discuss also some of the reasons why we may be seeing these numbers so right why, now. So why? I think over the years, you know, we've seen a trend in women, in, you know, reporting increasing numbers of, of depression and anxiety. Um, we know that coming out of the pandemic, there were a number of factors there that led people to be forced to think about how they're feeling. And I think a lot of people started talking about it from a mental health professional level, as well as just from in the medical field. I think we are getting better at understanding what depression looks like and what these mental illnesses look like. And we're getting better at diagnosing them, particularly amongst certain groups as well. I wonder what people should do and to figure out if they're just down or sad or depressed. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's a hard thing to think about because we don't, you know, a lot of people have these feelings. We want to make sure that people don't feel alone in what they're experiencing. It it can be very confusing, as we saw from The Rock. It can be confusing and hard to know what am I feeling and what this means. And many people often think that, well, nothing can be done about this. I must just kind of, you know, suppress this or just deal with it. And really, we want to encourage people to talk to their support systems if they're there or at least reach out to some type of treatment team, medical team to get support. We do have a number of uh, when they're available, good yeah. resources for individuals. Um, but it can be hard to know, what do I do with these feelings? And I don't want to be a burden on someone with these feelings. Yeah. 
I do think it's tough for people. The other thing is, uh, well, it's obviously tough for people, but I'm saying tough for people to talk about it. Um, symptoms, I think, is something that people want to know. Mm-hmm. As Poppy was saying, you know, how do you know when you've crossed that that threshold that you are there, and it is something that you should seek treatment for? Right. I think an individual, if they can be aware of what they're going through, hopefully can ascertain whether or not these feelings um, really are above and beyond what is common for them, and if these symptoms, such as loss of interest in pleasant activities, really a withdrawal from normal routines of life, not really showing up for your friends, you know, activities and whatnot, and really just a fatigue, excessive need for sleep. If those things persist for a long period of time, for more than a two-week period, and cause significant disruption in any major life area, then that really is a good time to say, hey, maybe I could start to talk to someone or really just ask for support. Maybe what about listening to people around you that love you, Mm -hmm. your friends who say you seem like something seems different? Yeah. Right. Right. And oftentimes it can be hard if an individual is in the, in the midst of a depression for them to really sometimes accept that support because they don't want to be a burden. They feel like perhaps sometimes no one might understand exactly what I'm going through. So there can be a little bit of a, a divide there. Is this because of COVID, just this elevated number? And if it is, is it reversible? Because now more people are going back to work. They get to be with people. Caitlin makes me happier every morning. You know, like really just right. talking to people. Yeah, right? does, it, does it change that? That is a great point. I think that getting back into the routine of work where you can feel a sense of accomplishment and mastery and be around wonderful people can certainly help yeah. with that. And I think that COVID certainly provided a lens into what we were experiencing. And for many individuals and communities, we saw a rise in these depression rates due to the, the circumstances and the stressors. Dr. Berry, obviously really important numbers for us to all keep a track of it and to check on your friends and family and make sure everyone's here okay. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. So some unwelcome news for Home Depot and a concerning sign for the state of you, the U.S. consumer. The company reported slower sales for its first quarter, a 4.5% drop across its stores. We're joined now by CNN Business reporter Nathaniel Meyerson. They were booming because we were all redoing things in our home during COVID when we couldn't go out. Is this now because we are going out? Right, Poppy. So you look at Home Depot sales from 2019 to 2022. Home Depot was a real winner during the pandemic. Sales boomed in 2020 when we were stuck at home. We weren't going out, uh, weren't going to movies and traveling, just spending on home renovations, remodeling the kitchen, uh, doing our our outdoors, our back doors. Um, But now sales are starting to slow down, down 4.2% last quarter from a year ago. So why is this happening? People are uh, fewer big ticket purchases, expensive purchases like grills and patio furniture. Home Depot said consumers are taking on smaller home renovation projects. And so Home Depot is projecting its first sales decline, annual sales decline since 2009. Do you think this is very different than, say, a Bed Bath & Beyond scenario for many reasons, but also a lot of the things from there you could order online, et cetera. A lot of things from Home Depot or Lowe's, you have to go buy the lumber, feel it. They're huge items, right? Totally. So, yes, Home Depot has been one of the, the uh, better performing brick and mortar stores. Yeah. This is not a Bed Bath & Beyond story yeah. um, or some of these other retail bankruptcies. People still do want to shop in stores. Uh, we saw retail sales last month up 0.4% from the month prior. But uh, people are changing how they're spending. We're, we're still shopping online, buying from Amazons, buying from Amazon. We're going out to bars and restaurants more, but we're not spending on these big ticket expensive goods like electronics, TVs, and furniture. That's so interesting. Okay, thank you, Nathaniel. Good to have you on. Appreciate it. Caitlin, 
Also this morning, a high school student has been suspended after she recorded her teacher reportedly, repeatedly, I should say, using a racial slur. Now the family is challenging the suspension and also wants an apology. Also, Silicon Valley Bank CEO getting absolutely grilled by senators on Capitol Hill after the bank's collapse forced the government to step in. Becker, you made a really stupid bet that went bad, didn't you? And the taxpayers of America had to pick up the tab for your stupidity, didn't they? A teenager recorded her teacher repeatedly using the N-word, and then the student was the one who got suspended. She's heading back to class today. This is what happened, according to the student's attorney. The teacher used a racial slur multiple times during a class on geometry, That prompted the high schooler to pull out her phone. She started recording. Her lawyer says she was just doing the right thing. She was documenting her teacher's appalling behavior. Now the family is challenging the student's suspension and demanding that school officials apologize. CNN's Adrian Broadus joins us now. Adrian, what what exactly is happening here? Well, Caitlin, I can tell you that family is also wondering if that student, Mary, didn't pull out her cell phone and start recording. Would we be having this conversation as she heads to the classroom today? That teacher she recorded will not be there. Video shared on social media shows a high school teacher using the N-word at least twice in a Missouri classroom. Mary Walton, a 15-year-old student, disturbed, began filming. I'm not calling anyone. I understand. I can say the word. That was May 9th. The teacher was initially placed on administrative leave. The principal calling the language, quote, inappropriate and inexcusable. A week later, that teacher has resigned. A statement from Springfield Public Schools announces he is, quote, no longer employed. But Mary was also punished, suspended for three days over the recording. The harshest penalty for this type of offense under school cell phone rules, her lawyer says. We've asked them to lift the suspension, let her go back to school immediately and apologize. Mary saw something that she believed needed to be reported. According to a news release from Mary's attorney, Natalie Hull, the geometry teacher interrupted a conversation between students about the slur, using the word several times before the recording starts. Students explain its derogatory context before one cautions the teacher about using it. Say right now, as a teacher, if you want to keep your job, this isn't the first I'm not. About 50 seconds into the short clip given to CNN by Hull, the teacher notices the camera recording him. No. The school district says its discipline is, quote, confidential per federal law, but noted that the student handbook limits inappropriate use of electronics and considers the identification of minor students when disseminating video. I think they're saying know your place. I think they're protecting the adults and the status quo more than they are encouraging the students to learn or grow or apply critical thinking skills. The school district also prohibits, quote, recording of faculty or staff in the classroom without prior approval and recording, quote, acts of violence. Hull claims that policy is problematic and it has a chilling effect on students like Mary looking to hold authority figures accountable. They could get in trouble for capturing evidence of a crime. 
Meanwhile, the school district has not identified the teacher. And in this video that you saw, we did not show the teacher's face. That was at the request of Mary's attorney. Meanwhile, we know the N-word is what is the alternative to the word. It's a word some people will not say. Back during the famous O.J. Simpson trial, the judge who presided over that case severely limited the use of the word in his courtroom. That was after a key witness for the prosecution used the word multiple times. And again, that was in the 90s. Today's May 17th, 2023. We're talking about the word used in a classroom. Caitlin. Yeah, and the student being suspended simply for recording what was happening in that classroom. Adrian, as you learn more, keep us updated. Thank you. The Senate Banking Committee got its chance on Tuesday to grill executives from Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. More than two months ago, the sudden failure of SVB shook Americans' confidence in the banking system. It triggered a domino effect that quickly led to the collapse of Signature Bank and then weeks later, First Republic. In his first public remarks since the collapse, Silicon Valley Bank's former CEO, Greg Becker, achieved what few could in Washington, unity among Republicans and Democrats, as he attempted to deflect blame. The takeover of SVB has been personally and professionally devastating. And I'm truly sorry for how this has impacted SVB's employees, our clients, and our shareholders. Did you, did you make any poor decisions? Senator, based on a previous question that was asked about looking at in, in hindsight, I, I truly do believe that with the information we had at the time when we made our decisions, that we made the best decisions that we could have. Senator, there were a series of events, unprecedented events that occurred that led us to where we are today. No, this wasn't unprecedented. This was bone deep, down to the marrow, stupid. Senator Elizabeth Warren pressed Becker in a heated exchange on how much of his own compensation he was willing to return. It's not how much it cost the... How much of the 40 million are you planning to return? How many times are we going to do this dance? Senator, I promise to cooperate with the regulators as they do. Are you planning to return a single nickel to what you cost the fund? Senator, I know there's going to be a process review of compensation. I'll take that as a no. Joining us now, our chief business correspondent, Christine. That was something. Bipartisanship on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Haven't seen that in a while. Yeah. And these were these Republicans and Democrats who were rightly really pressing these bank CEOs in this postmortem about what went wrong here. And Elizabeth Warren and others saying, are you going to give back any of your money? You know, you got stock all along the way as part of your compensation stock right up to the very end, right up to like weeks, right up to the very end. And um, that gentleman and others were saying, well, that's up to the board. The board makes those decisions. Uh, And so you've got regulators who are saying, well, maybe we need to look at that then. Maybe given the fact that the Fed had written written warnings, so many of them to SVB over the past year that had been ignored, maybe then you don't get your automatic stock, um, you know, your stock deposit if you haven't addressed the outstanding problems. And so that might be something I think that regulators look at going forward here. But I didn't hear much sympathy at all for these CEOs. They talked about, you know, the Congress or senators talked about how, you know, simple risk management, simple hedging. It was clear that interest rates were going to rise. Maybe we didn't know they'd rise this much this quickly, but the the sands were shifting and you were very focused on a small part, you know, your small part of the the industry at a very moment for, for tech in particular, where everything was changing. 
it should have been clear that you needed to do better risk management. And they didn't. But that's what kills me was watching this was he seemed to kind of point the finger at everyone else. else. It, it, he said he was truly sorry, but he didn't really seem to take any accountability for it or responsibility. He seemed to deflect blame for those things that, yeah. that if you're in this field, seem pretty obvious that you should be monitoring. And he also went back to a big criticism of the Fed was transitory, that inflation would be transitory. And he said, you know, look, we were told by the Fed, the messaging from the Fed was this would be transitory, inflation would be, and that they would be raising interest rates to try to grapple it. And nobody knew that the Fed was so wrong and would have to get so aggressive in its rate hikes. You can't just blame this on the Fed, especially when you had outstanding sort of warning letters from the regional Fed saying, hey, you've got some risk management problems here. Hey, you're overexposed here. Hey, if interest rates keep rising, you're going to have a problem if you need to raise money. All of those things that happen. They got so many warnings, but I think a real key here is that the rules don't make them comply with right. the warnings. Right. Yeah. That's, Absolutely. That's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. And I think l- watch this space for whether if you are not complying with the warnings, if you're going to get yeah. your periodic stock grants. Right. It's like know? saying, I'd like you to be on set at 6 a.m. when the show starts. <laughs> and maybe I will. I mean, come on. You can just deflect blame if you don't show up at 6 a.m. It'll be fine. Thank you, Christine, very much. You're welcome. So we have new reporting this morning in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into classified documents, Trump's classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. CNN has learned that a key attorney is leaving Trump's team. Caitlin, this is your reporting, Justin. Who is it? Yeah, this is from me and our colleague, Paula Reed. This is Tim Parlatori. He's actually a key attorney, especially when it comes to the documents investigation. We have now learned that he is leaving Trump's legal team. He gave a statement to CNN saying it has been an honor to work through the interesting legal issues, as you referred to it. He says his departure was a personal choice and doesn't reflect upon the case, as he says he believes the Justice Department is engaging in misconduct on this investigation. That's not a surprise. That's how the Trump team feels about the documents investigation. But Tim Parlatore is notable because he's the one who organized those searches for additional documents that you saw happen, not just at Mar-a-Lago, but the other properties Mm -hmm. as well last year, Trump's other properties, his golf course in New Jersey and others as well, storage facility. And Tim Parlatore also went and testified before the grand grand jury jury that's investigating Trump's handling of classified documents and information back in December. He was there for actually several hours in in that appearance. Okay, there's a lot here, but this also comes after, and I'm not saying it's linked to, but just the questions that you asked Trump in the town hall about classified documents and him, you asking, do you have more classified documents and him saying, not really. This is such a key probe. And this is a guy that I think many Americans actually know his name. Trump has a lot of lawyers, but this is one you know. He does have a lot of attorneys. This is one we actually, we had him on CNN um, maybe two months ago or so to talk about the state of the investigations and where they stand, because there are so many different investigations facing Trump. But one thing that stood out, you know, those comments at the town hall last week when Trump said not really, that was about showing documents to anyone. But also the questions um, about that he raised about whether or not he knowingly took documents with him, because they had kind of seemed to argue some of the attorneys previously that they kind of got swept up in the packing and the moving. Trump seemed to indicate people knew he was taking those documents. He was talking about them being in plain view um, at that town hall. The other thing I think that's important to note about the legal team is Parlatori says this was a personal decision and doesn't reflect upon the case. We are seeing Jack Smith's case continue. Um, They've brought nearly everyone they could essentially bring in in front of the grand jury from uh, groundskeepers at Mar-a-Lago to other people um, who helped prepare hamburgers, basically, as, as Paula Reed was describing it when she was reporting on that a few weeks ago. So it is an investigation that has been heating up. It's not clear 
where it's ultimately going to go. Obviously, they've been trying to tie it to the documents investigations that are happening with Biden mm -hmm. as well. He's got his own special counsel in Pence. Obviously, there's a clear distinction between yeah. those with the Subpoena whether or not there's the distinction and the obstruction yeah. if there was obstruction. Um, but it is notable, and I should know this also comes as there's been a lot of infighting in Trump's legal team. There always is infighting in his legal teams, it seems like. Uh, I've covered him for five years now, but um, I do think that is a factor in here as well. Would this have any effect on his willingness or ability to cooperate with the special counsel going forward? I don't know if it's with the cooperating because it's a lot of subpoenas that people are getting to go before Jack Smith. They don't have the, the timelines sure. are pretty yeah. abrupt. Um, but it, it does re remain to be seen what it means to the legal team. Does he keep the entire Mar-a-Lago documents uh, legal team in place? Do they make other changes? Um, but it is notable that Tim Parlatore and attorneys are dealing with this is now leaving the Trump and legal finally, team. And finally, is Trump saying anything so far, his remaining team? We, we've asked, we just asked for comment. We do know that Parlatore spoke with Trump. It's not clear what, that, what was said in that conversation, but we've just asked Trump's okay. team to comment Fascinating well. reporting. Thank you. Also this. Yeah, we've been tracking border crossings as they are down significantly along the southern border since the lifting of Title 42 last week. Was it what everyone was expecting? We're going to talk to Will Hurd, a former Republican congressman who represented a border district in Texas. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So officials have been warning of a potential surge of migrants over the U.S. southern border since the end of the pandemic era Title 42. The influx of asylum seekers since the expiration of that has been so far, and we're not even a week in, a little less than expected, according to Texas Congressman Henry Kular, excuse me. He's reporting that a 50 percent drop in encounters over the past two days compared to last week. That's what they're seeing. You're hearing Alejandro Mayorkas also reiterate what they're seeing more broadly. Joining us now is former U.S. Congressman Will Hurdy, represented Texas's 23rd district, which is, of course, a border district. That's right. It's good to have your perspective, especially not being in office, so you can speak even a little bit more candidly. Well, I've, about, I've always been You've candid. always been pretty candid. That was not a dig at you. This is, you a, know, this is a dig at those yeah. who deflect, which is not <laughs> sure. you. Sure. So what we've seen so far, and again, as I said, we're not even mm. a week uh, in sure. from this expiration, but is it, in, it must be encouraging to you. I just wonder if you agree with some of your fellow Republicans who are currently in Congress who said that's not going to last and that's not what we're seeing. And they point to, for example, way overcrowded detention facilities that the Biden administration can't change now because of what that federal judge ruled. I, I think the issue is that people are trying to act like it's still not a crisis. It's a crisis. And a few days of, of decrease um, is not a sign that things are successful and mission accomplished. You still have thousands of people coming to country illegal. You still have hundreds of people in these camps and shelters and places like El Paso. And just because you didn't see an increase doesn't mean that this was a success. But let's not be shocked. Also, guess what? If you administer consequences to negative behavior, you may see that negative behavior stop. And the fact that the Biden administration is deporting more people, um, is that a positive thing? Of, of course. I mean, it should have been done two years ago. But we got a long way to go. And, and, and the reality is men and women in Border Patrol um, are still frustrated with the lack of policy. They are the ones that have to implement a bad policy. They're also concerned that after the human smugglers figure out the new rules, that there's going to be ways to get around those new rules. And, and you got to remember, these smuggling operations 
are billion-dollar businesses. Um, they probably made a, yeah. a minimum $25 billion last year. <clears throat> so, yeah. um, so, so it's still a crisis. It's still a problem. Still more work needs to be done. And we need to be working with our allies in other countries, which um, is not happening at the pace that I think it should. But is that your sense of why the crush at the border did not materialize like we had been hearing? And you know, Republicans thought this is going to be this kill shot to Mayorkas, the yeah. DHS secretary that they've been so critical of and potentially may impeach. Is it because they rushed resources to the border? They implemented those stricter asylum rules. They sent the 1,500 troops that President Biden ordered there. Is that does it show that there is an ability to be able to triage when there is an expected crisis, or, or what does it say to you? Well, I think what it says is that when there's consequences, right? The, the, the difference is is that people were concerned that they're going to be deported, and if they get deported, they're not going to be able to come back after five for for at least five years and try. So there's not going to be repeat chances to come into the country illegally. That was kind of the rumor. That was going around some of the folks, some of the, the, the folks that were trying to come here illegally. So what does that say? That says very simple. People know that if you come in between our ports of entry, it's illegal. And if you do that, you're going to get sit home. Right. And so that, I think, is is a, a change that needs to continue. And that and guess what? That's what President Obama did. That's what George W. Bush did. Um, and, and why it's taken almost three years to figure it out. Um, is, is, is kind of shocking to me. Um, this, isn't, this isn't rocket science. Um, and the other thing that we need to be doing, it hasn't been covered much, uh, last week a number of leaders from Latin American countries came in and said, hey, we need more help. We want to be able to do more against the, the push factors mm -hmm. that are happening so in some of these countries. can we countries. get to exactly that? Because I don't think this is getting enough attention. You said on Meet the Press over the weekend, look, the solutions are there. Just take someone who's willing to go out and do them. One of the economic factors that is pushing those migrants out toward the United States is the Trump era sanctions that remain and make it more economically dire for people in those countries. Do, well, you, do you support at this point those being pulled back? Well, I support creating a 10-year plan in the various regions within Latin America that includes um, support using our, our, foreign, our, our foreign aid, working with the diplomatic community. There's a number of organizations that are putting resources into those countries. You could do this right um, now. Well, I, I, I agree. That, that, that doesn't, what I just outlined does not require Congress. This is something the Biden administration uh, can, can do today, and they should. And by the way... All of these countries are asking for it, right? Um, this is our own backyard, and we're not doing enough in order to grow the economy in these places. And, and that helps us. It's a fraction of the cost to solve the problem in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras than to solve the problem once it, once it gets to our borders. Oh, and by the way, another thing that we should be doing is streamlining legal immigration. Um, the fact that the economy is as bad as it is, but there are still so many industries that need workers, let's do that. And that bill is sitting on the table and can be brought up. Speaker Pelosi didn't do it when she was in, in Congress. I doubt it's going to happen this, this time. But we know all the things that need to be done to address the crisis at the border, improve our economy, and work with our allies around the world. But it requires people that have understanding of these issues and the political will to solve these problems. Well, and there's, it's difficult to get that political will. A lot of people talk about it on the campaign trail. We don't always see it fulfilled once they're in office. And this is something we talked about with Trump. I think one thing we should be clear about with the audience here is you are also weighing your own run for the Republican nomination for president. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
we talked to Trump last week in this town hall as he always asserts that he fulfills his immigration policies. Um, but something Chris Christie has been pointing out, he did not when it comes to the wall. He did not finish building the border wall. He didn't finish these things that helped sweep him into office when it came to immigration. And the crisis that we're dealing with now began under Donald Trump. Right. That's something that 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 people forget. This notion of treating everybody as an asylum seeker, which led to these increase in numbers of coming to the country that began under the previous administration under Donald Trump. Fentanyl increase under Donald Trump's um, uh, uh, tenure. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact that t- twice as many people are dying from drug overdoses than they than they are from 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 gun violence. These are shocking numbers. So that we have not seen. Um, a, a proper border policy in a really long time. And, but now it's gotten significantly worse under, under the Biden administration. There's no question about that. But all of these solutions and, and the, your, your point, yeah, people talk a good game, you know, on TV and on, on Twitter. But when it comes time to actually do something, right, nobody has the receipts to say we solve problems. We just quickly talk about what Ron DeSantis said, mm-hmm. because is this yeah. someone just talking the talk? Let's play it. It's very quick. I'd shut down the border immediately. Why are we letting this happen to our country? It's hurting people. First of all, it's part of U.S. law that you allow asylum seekers sure. in this country. Not, not only the huge amount of trade that crosses that southern border, it's $1.8 billion a day. Well, look, this is, some, shut it. this is some of the ignorance that we see from our elected officials about that, that don't understand uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. The amount of trade, it's not just trade with Texas, right? Um, it, every, all 50 states are impacted uh, by trade coming through, through our southern border. So closing the border is going to impact our economy at a time when people are concerned uh, with, with inflation, at a time when folks feel like they are worse off than they were uh, the previous year. So doing that Talk about would supply have chain disruption. For, Let's just for close sure, the southern sure. border. But, the, but, but, we, but we know how to solve the problem. Yes, we do. Thank Work you with for your straight talk. Right. See, you, prove, you proved <laughs> right. yourself so, right at the beginning. Answer questions, be honest. And when are you making a decision? For Look, curious you know, parties, my um, uh, for, for me the opportunity to serve my country. Uh, if I if I have an opportunity to do it, I'll take it. And a decision has to come soon. Soon, soon. Okay. Thank you. We'll be watching former Congressman Will Hurd. Thank you to for joining us to talk about such an important issue and let us know what your decision is. Thanks for having me on. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, Republicans there who have a supermajority just overrode the governor's veto and banned abortions in the state after 12 weeks. We're live outside the state capitol with reaction next. Having passed by the requisite three-fifths vote, the House has overridden the governor's veto and the bill becomes law, notwithstanding the governor's objections. So be notified. Remarkable watching state houses recently. Yes, the power that they have. Even in states like that's North Carolina, everyone, with Democratic governors the power to override well, when they have a supermajority. The supermajority is the story. It's the story. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. What you were just hearing there, those were people yelling shame as Republicans in North Carolina voted to override the governor's veto there and approve an abortion ban. Just over the state line, Democrats are fighting a bill in South Carolina. Also, President Biden now cutting a major foreign trip short. He's set to depart today, but time is running out to reach a deal on the debt limit and prevent the economy 
from economic catastrophe. Congress exploring the dangers of artificial intelligence. One senator using AI to clone his voice and speak words he did not write. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. Developing overnight, as we were just talking about, this battle over abortion rights in states across America. The focus today is the Carolinas. Republicans in North Carolina overriding the governor's veto and forcing through an abortion ban. The sergeant at arms will clear those who can't follow the rules. Protesters shouting at lawmakers, some of them had to be removed after this vote came down. Under the ban that is now law in North Carolina, most abortions will be illegal after 12 weeks of pregnancy there. The state has been a refuge for women seeking abortions in the South. Meanwhile, next door in South Carolina, Democrats are trying to stop a bill that would ban most abortions at around six weeks when early cardiac activity is detected. That's before most women even know that they're pregnant. Democrats have proposed more than a thousand amendments to drag out the process as long as possible going late into the night. To me, every minute we're in here fighting this is a minute women can get health care across our state. But this is an issue, while it may be futile, is worth fighting for. We know, and, and that's why we're not letting it go to a, a ballot, that most people in this state and in the United States want abortion access. Lawmakers were forced to debate until almost 2 a.m. this morning. They are set to return in just a few hours from now. Big question on how long this will drag on. Diane Gallagher is live outside the state capitol in neighboring Raleigh, North Carolina. Diane, obviously we're still monitoring what's happening in South Carolina, but to see this happen in North Carolina, it was expected. But it is so important to remind viewers that this was because a Democrat who had voted for abortion access previously then switched and gave Republicans that supermajority that allowed them to, to override that veto. Uh, that's right, Caitlin. And that Democrat, uh, that former Democrat, now Republican, did vote for uh, that veto override last night. She also voted for the bill uh, just about two weeks ago. Uh, Democrats have talked about just how quickly this unfolded in North Carolina. Fifteen days ago is when the bill first dropped in the middle of the night. It has now been vetoed and overridden. And there's not much else that they can do at this point, Democrats, in terms of this. After that veto override vote happened, it now is law in North Carolina, but Democrats say that they are going to take this on the campaign trail, uh, that they feel that there is enough in that law that perhaps people do not know about, that they can make sure North Carolinians learn about some of the extra regulations, reporting requirements, licensing requirements uh, that may put some of the clinics in jeopardy here in the state, as well as the several in-person uh, appointments that somebody trying to obtain a medication abortion will have to go through because of this law. Now, it goes into effect on July 1st. But again, Democrats say that they feel that this is going to be a 2024 energizing message for them. Republicans call this a compromise within their own caucus. Of course, Democrats were not involved in this. But uh, Democrats told me last night, they said, look, when Democrats are talking about abortion, it is a winning subject. When Republicans are talking about it, it is a losing one. Every vote counts, clearly. Diane, thank you very much. Mm -hmm.
Also this morning, President Biden is heading to Japan to meet with G7 leaders, but a trip won't be as long as initially planned. He's cutting it short. He had plans to become the first sitting U.S. president to actually go to Papua New Guinea as well as to have a quad summit with other world leaders in Australia. He's now canceling those two stops, though, because time is running short in Washington to address the debt ceiling or risk a catastrophic default. Meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and top lawmakers yesterday, President Biden started out the tense negotiations with a joke. Get a good picture of all of us. We're having a wonderful time. Everything's going well. <laughs> we spoke with the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, last hour. She said an agreement can and must be reached in time. Wonderful time. We have said this over and over again. The president has said this. We are not a deadbeat nation. Uh, we pay our debts. This is something that Congress should do. They have done this 78 times since 1960. So as it relates to the debt limit, that is something that we can do. This is something that needs to get done as it relates to the debt limit as soon as possible. We have to get this done. As you know, Caitlin, as well, This, if we do not deal with the debt limit in the way that Congress has dealt with it 78 times since 1960, it could trigger a recession. We could lose millions of jobs. But here's what's important to remember. While they are sounding hopeful, they are still very part apart, far apart when it comes to the policy aspect of this. Korean said that the president will continue talks while he is in Japan. He's going to meeting with those same congressional leaders once he returns from his trip. Republican Congressman Ken Buck was asked yesterday about a possible U.S. default if Congress fails to reach a debt ceiling agreement. Listen to his answer. I don't know what a default looks like because we've never been there before. Is it is it something that happens slowly over time and and within day two or three, America, uh, we pass a debt ceiling? Um, but I, I don't think that uh, it is the end of the world uh, to default. That doesn't mean I'm encouraging a default in any way, shape or form. Here with us, CNN chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, Christine Romans. Maybe not the end of the world, but the end of our you know, position in the world, at least for a while. Look, that is a contrarian position that terrifies people on Wall Street and business leaders and small business people and the Fed chief and the Treasury secretary and anybody who is really concerned about how the global economy works and how the U.S. economy works. Would it be the end of the world for Congressman Buck's constituents if senior citizens, for example, had to wait three weeks to get their check because we went two or three days over the line? Uh, a quarter of senior citizens on Social Security, it is all of their income. That means they can't go give an IOU to the grocery store and they can't give an IOU for their rent, the ripple effects down the economy in just that one way would be very, very difficult. Also, you know, we did get right up to the line with the situation he described in 2011 and the stock market tanked 17 percent and it added more than a billion dollars on the cost of financing our debt because interest rates spiked. So we have seen real world impacts and it is dangerous. Um, this also is a situation where we have so many um, banks that have been a little bit nervous lately. This is not the time to be putting more nervousness in the banking system. And you've got a Goldman Sachs that estimates a tenth of the American economy simply stops, stops the moment you go over that line. There aren't enough dollars to pay the bills. And that is something that is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. So for a few congressmen who say, you know, let's 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 toy with this. That could be, you know, this is more important for spending austerity in the future. Uh, everybody who actually makes money and hires people does not think that's a good idea, guys. Yeah, because <laughs> it's not a good idea. Yeah. Christine Romans, thanks.
Very much. Wouldn't be the end of the world. Would be the end of the world for some people, though. For like everyone who relies on, you know, all that aid. New reporting this morning. Special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into classified documents at former president's President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. CNN has learned that a key attorney is leaving Trump's legal team. Caitlin, this is your reporting first on CNN. What can you tell us? Who yeah. is it? Paula Reidner told Tim Parlatori, who has been an attorney at the center of the Mar-a-Lago documents mm-hmm. investigation, is leaving Trump's legal team. It had been rumored for a few weeks now. It became official yesterday. We are told he gave us a statement saying that it wasn't that it was a personal decision he's making, that it wasn't an indication of where he thinks this investigation is going. Of course, we don't ultimately know what Jack Smith, the special counsel who's investigating this, is going to decide. I think it's easy for people to say, you know, there are a lot of Trump attorneys. Uh, Which one is this? This is Parlatore. He was the one who helped organize those additional searches that they did for more documents and other Trump properties where they went and looked for them. He testified before the grand jury that's investigating the documents back in December. He was there for several hours. Mm. One key thing he said in March when it was reported that he had gone, he said they kept trying to ask him about conversations he had with Trump. Trump clearly trying directly. to get to Trump's mindset. He's an attorney. He, I, don't, I think he said that at the time he did not speak to them about that. One thing I will note, though, is this comes as he had defended the way that Trump had handled the documents, made this comment. In a case where they have to prove willful retention of documents, what the facts actually show is a persistent pattern of willful return of marked documents whenever they were found. And so I went through all that with the jury. So that was his grand jury testimony. The other thing that I think is important here, there's always infighting in almost every legal team Trump has had, I think dating back to when he entered the White House, as long as we've been covering his legal teams. There has also been that in this legal team, not just on documents, but there's so many different attorneys. Joe Tacopino is the one that you've seen representing Trump in the Eugene Carroll case here yeah. in New York, where he was found civilly liable for sexual abuse. Uh, I had Tim Parlatori on. I was interviewing him a few weeks ago, maybe two months ago or so, and we asked about whether or not he thought Tacopino was the right person to take that Eugene Carroll case to trial. He had a really telling answer. This is what he said. As to who's going to try the case, uh, I know that Joe has certain um, potential conflict issues given his prior uh, contacts with Stormy Daniels. So, you know, who is the right attorney to take it to trial is something that the client will have to decide. Yeah, that didn't go over well inside the of Trump legal team. Um, I think the other thing to consider here is that Trump has been very unhappy with all the investigations into him privately, mm-hmm. especially the documents investigation, because he's paid a lot of attorneys a lot of money, and he's been asking people private, privately, you know, why is this still going on? Why hasn't it gone away yet? Obviously, it's a very complicated case. We don't know where it will end up, but it is notable that Tim Parlatori is leaving his legal and team. He was on that case and testified before the grand jury. Let's talk more about this news that Caitlin broke with our political director, David Chalian also the host of the CNN Political Briefing Podcast. What's your take, David? Well, first of all, it's always an awkward thing when you are the legal representation and also a witness in the case yeah. that has to testify. Uh, that that creates uh, problems uh, from the get-go there. But as Caitlin noted, um, 
infighting in Trump's legal circles is nothing new here. So whenever we see a Trump legal team formed, we could pretty much assume that's not going to be the team in place when the case uh, comes to resolution here. You know, this classified documents case, uh, especially the uh, potential for an obstruction of justice charge here, is one of the most serious uh, investigations that the former president is facing. So it's not a great day uh, when you have to shake up your legal team uh, for the client uh, if indeed it is as serious as a case as we believe this to be. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. Also, David, I know you were watching the races that were happening last night. We saw Daniel Cameron, who's the attorney general in Kentucky, win the Republican nomination. He'll be going up against the Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, in that state. This is going to be one of the most closely watched, if not the most closely watched gubernatorial races this year. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, first, the first takeaway here is just the resounding victory that uh, Attorney General Cameron had. You know, he's a, a rising star in the Republican Party. You remember Donald Trump featured him prominently at his 2020 uh, Republican National Convention that year. What I think is so interesting, of course, is that he bridges a divide that we constantly talk about inside the Republican Party. The McConnell world and Trump world, these two people do not get along. They don't speak. And yet uh, Cameron is a former McConnell aide, totally part of that McConnell, Kentucky establishment, but had Donald Trump's endorsement here and made sure to do some business for Donald Trump yesterday when he accepted his victory. He also needled Ron DeSantis by saying that Donald Trump's culture of winning is alive and well in Kentucky. What else stood out to you about the races that we saw last night in Florida, Philadelphia? Well, in the Philadelphia mayoral race, it was quite interesting to see that progressives went so hard uh, for their candidate and came up short. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, uh, others went in and you see Sherelle Parker uh, got the Democratic nomination all but assured to become uh, the mayor of Philadelphia when the general election takes place in November. And she was running as a more uh, moderate candidate, uh, not terribly unlike we saw with Eric Adams in New York in terms of when it comes to policing and crime issues. David Chalian, thank you, friend. We'll hear you. Sure. See you, hear you on the podcast. Appreciate yeah. it. So to AI now and the man behind the groundbreaking but controversial chat chatbot known as ChatGPT is urging lawmakers to regulate it, to regulate AI. What would that look like and can they actually have the will to do it? I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Too often, we have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. The unbridled exploitation of personal data, the proliferation of disinformation, and the deepening of societal inequalities. We have seen how algorithmic biases can perpetuate discrimination and prejudice, and how the lack of transparency can undermine public trust. This is not the future we want. Notice he wasn't actually talking there. That's Senator Richard Blumenthal. He kicked off a Senate panel hearing yesterday on the oversight of arti artificial intelligence, but clearly not actually the senator speaking. That voice was not mine. The words were not mine. And the audio was an AI voice cloning software trained on my floor speeches. The remarks were written by ChatGPT. Uh, 
when it was asked how I would open this hearing. The Democratic senator's opening remarks delivered by an artificial intelligence-generated recording of his voice in an attempt to illustrate the potential risks of that technology. Three experts on the subject testified at the hearing, including Sam Altman. He is the CEO of OpenAI. That's the company that is behind the artificial intelligence-powered chatbot, ChatGPT. Altman told, Altman told lawmakers that it is time, he believes, to regulate artificial intelligence. We're here because people love this technology. We think it can be a printing press moment. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. Joining us now, CNN correspondent Donny O'Sullivan and CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Donny, obviously it was clear why he was testifying, but interesting to hear him say, I'm here because if this goes wrong, it could go really wrong. Yeah, and a bit of an understatement there when, when he yeah. was like, yeah, it could go quite wrong. Um, look, I think uh, he knows this technology almost better than anyone. Uh, OpenAI is really pioneering in this space. Uh, but even they, even Sam Altman, even the CEO of Google recently said, you know, the systems they are building, these AI systems, they sometimes behave in such ways. They sometimes uh, behave so um, accurately that they can figure stuff out that the guys themselves who are making this don't necessarily know all the time how it works or how AI is figuring out certain things. So uh, even he himself would say, we don't necessarily have a total handle on this. He said that's why you can't test it in a lab. Sam Altman has said that. That's why you have to get in the world. Elon Musk calling it, you know, in that interview last night, a double-edged sword. I thought, um, Sarah, this exchange, obviously I have a vested interest in this for my <laughs> children's future, but I thought this exchange with Senator John Ossoff and Altman was really telling when, when Ossoff essentially said, you know, or asked, this would harm children like social media has. Listen to this. We try to design systems uh, that do not maximize for engagement. In fact, we're so short on GPUs, uh, the less people use our products, the better. Um, but we're not an advertising-based model. We're not trying to get people to use it more and more. Um, and I think that's, di that's a different shape than ad-supported social media. You're nodding. I mean, he makes a good point, no? A very good point. And one thing to note here is that it took us 10 years to start thinking about regulating social media in a thoughtful way. Lawmakers were really slow to it, in part because they had so much to benefit from social media, running ad campaigns, et cetera. When it comes to AI, we are jumping on this pretty quickly. I mean, we introduced this publicly just months ago, and already we have the CEO of one of the biggest firms testifying before Congress. Think about that. Jeff Bezos didn't testify before Congress until decades into his career. So we definitely are taking this more seriously, Poppy. But to the point about kids, what's interesting here is that this has mass adoption. This isn't something where the tech companies like the metaverse are trying to push it on us. Kids are using this in school. They're using it to write essays. It's so easy to figure out. Of course, they're going to be early adopters. Yeah. But the question, I think, and it's easy to be in Washington and be cynical about whether or not lawmakers will know how to deal with this. The fact that they are taking it more seriously, Joni, what does it say to you about, and we keep hearing from Sam Moulton, but what does it say to you about how the lawmakers were treating this, the questions they were asking hmm. yesterday? Yeah, I mean, to Sarah's point, I, I just realized yesterday I was looking, Mark Zuckerberg didn't show up. 
uh, to Congress until 2018 after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. At that point, Facebook had, had been never around. been to Congress he had to never, testify before never testified, yeah. Before, and so at that point, Facebook was 14 years old, um, which is quite remarkable when you think about how much Facebook changed the world in the 2010s, right? Yeah. Um, but look, I think the hearing yesterday was important, but I mean, it barely scratched the surface. It was very much introductory. I mean, this is going to touch our lives in so many ways, whether it's from jobs and industry to the recording industry, uh, to education, to everything else. Um, so, I mean, they're going to have to start having hearings on individual aspects of this. Yeah, Poppy? I just, my question is, like, they have the power. These CEOs mm. have the power. We talked about my interview with the Google CEO in 2019 yeah. when he said, if AI, I'm paraphrasing, gets too far ahead of us, we will have to, you know, pause it, stop it. And I said, really? Even though it would be so profitable? And he essentially said, we have a moral responsibility to do so. Isn't this now actually testing that for all these companies? What will they do? Sure. And look, I mean, to, back to your point about being cynical, uh, they have had multi Congress has had many hearings on social media over the years, the past six years, and they've really not done anything about it. So whether or not they're really going to be able to get their hands around this issue is, remains to be seen. But there's one difference, which was the tone of this hearing yesterday was actually professional. Mm -hmm. Typically, when we have big tech execs hauled into Congress, they're just leveraging this for sound bites to yeah. be able to go after China or to be able to crack down hard on big tech. That's not what you saw yesterday. Yesterday, there seemed to be bipartisan agreement that we actually have to take this seriously. And while I am skeptical that Congress will move, I'm a little bit more hopeful that they'll take this issue more seriously than they did social media. That's such a good point, right? Thanks, good, good for Sam to go and civil exchanges mm -hmm. between lawmakers. Like civil exchanges is yeah. progress now. Okay. ChatGPT. This is she, where we she, are. ChatGPT wrote that point for Sarah. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Dodie. We've seen how they handle the debt ceiling. We'll see. They can solve that one. Thank you, Sarah. All right, we have new audio that we just got into CNN. It is from the LA Times. It's an exchange between a few reporters and Senator Dianne Feinstein. The Democratic senator recently returned to Capitol Hill after an extended absence that drew a lot of scrutiny and criticism even from some of her colleagues as she was recovering from shingles, given the key role she plays on the Senate Judiciary Committee and confirming judges. A reporter asked the 89-year-old lawmaker how she's been received by her colleagues since she got back to Washington this is what she said. What have you heard? What have I heard about what? About your return. How have they felt about your no, return? No, I haven't been gone. Okay. Um, you should follow me. I haven't been gone. I've been working. You've been working from home is what you're saying? No, I've been here. Um, I've been voting. Please, either know or don't know. In our last hour, we spoke with the L.A. Times reporter that Senator Feinstein was speaking with there. He said that she was back for a week at that point. So that may have been what she was referring to. Of course, it raised a lot of questions given she was gone for two and a half months. CNN has reached out to Feinstein's office for a comment on their version of what happened in this exchange. No word back yet. The San Antonio Spurs winning the NBA's draft lottery and rights to draft seven foot four Victor Wenbanyama who many believe is the best prospect since LeBron James. It's pretty short, huh? <laughs> and a growing number of Americans say they have changed their religious beliefs or traditions. A big shift from even just last year. Harry Enton, our in-house religious expert, is Name. here with this morning's number. Name that and song, Madonna. Harry. <laughs> means that the number one pick in the 2023 NBA draft goes to the San Antonio Spurs. The San Antonio Spurs 
Walk away with the first over. Walking away and striking gold, basically, as they won the 2023 NBA draft lottery. It means that they will have the right to make the first pick at next month's draft. And all eyes are going to be on Victor Wembenyama, who is expected to be the very first name that is called eagerly on June 22nd. The 19-year-old French phenom is not even in the league yet. But according to the NBA, he is already one of the top 10 most viewed players on social media this season. When Benyama watched the lottery from Paris and described his excitement with a healthy dose of confidence. Can't really describe him, you know. It's just my, my heart's beating. I got every, everyone I, I love, everyone I know around me. It's a really special moment I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. I'm trying to win a ring ASAP, so be ready. You can't tell from that video, but he is seven foot four. He is a superstar. He is set to join a pair of the legendary Spurs who were drafted, also drafted number one. In 1997, the Spurs picked Tim Duncan number one. He went on to help them win five championships. Ten years before that, the Spurs used their top pick on Hall of Fame center David Robinson. So joining us now is the host of the Carrie Champion Show on Amazon Prime Video, Carrie Champion herself. So happy to actually have you here in person. Um, I mean, I loved him saying, just be ready. <laughs> be ready for it all. Okay, so I will say this, and I'm, so, I'm, I'm having a sober moment here. I know there's a lot of hype around Victor, but there has only been one person, I believe, who has lived up to this type of hype, and that was LeBron James. Um, it's very hard to have um, so many people say you're going to be the next big thing, and while saying he's 7'4", I still hear sometimes he's 7'5", and he <laughs> plays like a point guard. We really just don't know what we're going to get. Yeah. I'm excited for him, though, because this is a wonderful opportunity. 19 coming to a new country, uh, playing with a great organization and Co Coach Popovich with the Spurs. Oh, the it's the best. It's, he's he's going to teach him everything he needs to know. So I feel like he's in I good hands. I think that's a great point about having Pop as your coach because it's not just about the game of basketball. He's going to teach him so much about his life and how he's mm -hmm. going to lead yes. at 19. Mm -hmm. yep. That's like really critical to his success, isn't it? And I think it's also, if I had to say, uh, even though they say the ping pongs did it, if I had to say, I think it was very, very intentional from the universe because Imagine coming over here not knowing how to move through the chaos. And basketball sports has become so political. And you need yeah. someone to measure you. So Pop will be a good father and have Tim Duncan there as a coach. So it'll That's be good. Great. Yeah. And he is just so young. And, and that is something, you know, we've been talking about is not just how you conduct yourself on the court, on the off. field. It's also off it. John Morant. Yeah. I mean, this, I remember when this first happened back in March. Mm -hmm. He flashed a video inside of a club at a night. A gun, yeah. A, a flash a gun, sorry. Yeah. Um, and was suspended. It was a big point of controversy. Now he just was seen flashing a gun on Instagram Live in a car again. He yeah. has now been suspended. There's an investigation into this. I mean, what are you hearing from people on this? Caitlin and Poppy, this is one of these instances where um, a lot of people have absolutely zero sympathy for Ja at this point. Um, it's almost as if you're thinking you can't be a serious person. Uh, you, you, you give this entire sit-down interview where you say you're in therapy and you're changing your ways. And, I, and, and, and quite frankly, he can't be a serious person because why in the world would you surround yourself with people who will put you on Instagram, on social media, live in the moment, and you know there's a gun in the car? What is the point of that? Let's listen to Adam Silver, the commissioner, talking about this. Sure. I at least was left um, with the sense that he was taking this incredibly seriously. So, honestly, I was shocked when I saw this weekend that video. Now, 
We're in the process of investigating it, um, and we'll figure out exactly what happened to the best we can then. It's, again, it's the video's a bit grainy and all that, but I'm assuming the worst. Have the commissioner say I'm assuming the worst means what for Joe? It means that they're going to give him more of a suspension, a very more significant suspension. Last time it was eight games, right? And that was less than two months ago. So Jaws, one of these superstars of the NBA, and I think he thought his talent would trump all. It never it, does. It never does. Why do people always does. think this? And they're gonna and they're gonna really make him pay for it this time. They really are. And he's gonna have to learn, sit down for some time and learn. Yeah, it does. It does. That's totally right. You're just the way you play is not an, an excuse for that. Yeah. Carrie Champion, though, it was great to have you on set this morning. Thank love you. Thank you. I love you guys. You guys look amazing. Can I, I mean, you you yeah. Can I just hang out with you all the time? Can I just hang out with you ladies us all the time? Shame with these leather pants. The, listen, yeah, the yeah. ladies and the sports and the news, we do it all here. And I want to hang out with you. Amen, sister. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. And we'll thank take you. that walk soon. Soon. All right. A growing number of Americans say they used to follow a different religious tradition or denomination than the one they practice today. This is according to a new survey. That percentage is just going up. CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton is here. That is R.E.M. I love that we got every song that mentions religion. Were you even born when this song came out, Harry? I don't know. I have no idea if I was actually out when this song came. It's not a song I've ever heard before, but let's get to the numbers. Uh, This morning's number is 24%. Have you ever changed religions? 24% of Americans said yes in 2022. It was only 15% who said so in 2021. Reasons people change from their prior religion. Not surprisingly, 57% said they stopped believing in it. Interestingly, 30% said it was because their prior religion was anti-LGBTQ. 29% said the family was never religious. What were the faiths uh, that people left? 37% top, Catholic, 24% non-evangelical Protestant, 17% other Christian, 13% were evangelical Christian. That's really interesting. It's also though, Harry, not just people changing religions, overall relying on their faith less than ever. This is I force my children to go to church on Sundays. They're relying on it less and less. Correct. So religion is the most important thing in my life. Just 15% say that now. A decade ago, it was 25% and rising identities. Look at this. Nothing in particular up nine points to 23%. Agnostic and atheist also up now to 6% each. So the fact is people are relying on religion less than ever before in this country, guys. Okay. That's fascinating. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. There's an uproar here in New York City over the mayor, Eric Adams' plan to house migrants who would bus to the city from border cities and school gyms here. We're going to talk to the former speaker of the New York City Council who is defending the decision by Mayor Adams. You're not going to do this to us. You picked the wrong neighborhood and the wrong school. Those are parents protesting in New York City against... The mayor, Eric Adams, has planned to house migrants in school gyms as the city is trying to reckon with a surge of asylum seekers sent here. I think they tried to sort of just slip this through without giving people a chance to really respond. I would like other other places to be considered. Our school is tiny. We can barely fit in it as it is. Adam says a lack of support from the federal government has forced his hand with this. It's left him no good options. 
It's harsh criticism of President Biden's handling of this crisis that is driving a wedge between the mayor of the nation's largest city and a president who is trying to combat the crisis at the border. Joining us now, Democrat and former New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. You have a perspective on this, which is essentially just that the mayor doesn't have a ton of good options here and that you you are actually on board with his plan to do this. Well, I mean, well, clearly the situation has shown is that we're in an emergency and New York City is sort of out of space. I mean, 62,000 migrants in the last year, uh, over 120 hotels opened up, uh, 4,200 migrants in the last week. And the clip you just showed of parents being upset, it never should have reached this point. Uh, the mayor has called for a decompression strategy, trying to figure out ways to kind of spread migrants out, sending people to the suburbs where you've seen county executives and people outside of New York City fighting against that. And what all of this shows is really a failure at the federal level, a lack of coordination, not enough support for localities and cities that are dealing with this surge. So understandably, the mayor is saying, I need some help here. Uh, there was a $350 million pot of FEMA money that cities could apply for. Uh, New York City has already incurred well over a billion dollars in cost to house 62,000 migrants and has only been award awarded $30 million from FEMA. The cost associated with this is going to uh, bloom out to $4.2 billion over the next year. So it is an untenable situation. And we're a city of immigrants. I mean, we're a city that welcomes all people, but clearly this has become a toxic situation without much help from the federal government. So here's the other side of that argument. Republicans who point out, look, you made, Mr. Mayor, and voters in New York, New York a sanctuary city. Uh, and so this was going to happen, and you said you're welcoming, and here you go. This is what Representative Mike Lawler, who's a Republican who flipped one of those districts in New York, said about Orange County, for example, which has now blocked Mayor Adams from moving migrants there. Here's what he told us. New York City chose to be a sanctuary city back in 2016. When Southern state governors who were overwhelmed and inundated uh, over the last two years chose to send migrants up to New York City, Eric Adams called it morally bankrupt uh, that they were doing that without coordination and cooperation with city officials. He's now doing the very thing he decried. By trying to send them outside of the city. Do you think New York brought any of this on itself? Oh, no. I mean, that is not a fair comparison. When we say we're a sanctuary city, we're a city that welcomes immigrants. We're a city that does not go after undocumented people. We're a city that does not do things that we've seen in other cities across the country in having uh, ICE agents outside of certain facilities where people are trying to get help. That's what we mean. This is an unprecedented crisis that is driven by violence in Central America and in Mexico and is now overwhelming cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York has really been the epicenter of it. So we are a city that's welcoming, but we're a city that needs help. We need help from the federal government. We need coordination, and we're not getting that right now. One other crazy fact is that some of these cities in Texas, where Governor Abbott is busing people here, flying people there, they're taking FEMA money that they're receiving from FEMA to help migrants and using that money to pay for bus tickets and plane tickets to send people 
clear. That's not the intention of that FEMA money. And again, it shows a lack of coordination, a lack of help from the federal government. So Mayor Adams, I think, is right in saying, give us some help here. We can't do this alone. And I should note, you've not always been aligned or agreed with everything Mayor Adams has done. No, I mean, he's a friend, but we don't agree on every issue. But clearly, what you saw in those clips at the beginning of this uh, block with those parents, it never should have reached this point. Corey Johnson, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us here on Thank you. So now ahead this story, a 13-year-old boy used a slingshot to chase off a kidnapper trying to abduct the boy's sister. His name is Owen Burns. He's a hero. There he is with his parents. He joins us next. Wow. All right, how about this? How about this for a morning moment for you? A slingshot is all it took for one 13-year-old to save his sister's life. Police report an 8-year-old was mushroom hunting in her backyard in rural Alpena, Michigan, when a man came out of the woods behind their house, put his hand over her mouth, and attempted to pull her back into the woods. Her brother was watching from inside. He grabbed his slingshot and hit the attempted kidnapper twice before scaring him off. Police were able to track down the suspect, whose injuries were consistent with a slingshot strike, and arrested him on attempted kidnapping and assault charges. So let's bring in 13-year-old Owen Burns and his slingshot. You can show it to everyone, Owen. He saved his sister's life. Also, his parents, Margaret and Andrew. Good morning, guys. Morning. Morning. Owen, good job. Good, good, good job. What was it like when you saw this happen? You just had that instinct to go? It just feel like I was scared and I had like something to do because if I didn't grab it, she would have been taken away or way more worse. So I grabbed it, grabbed anything I could get. How's your sister? Nice back, hit him. It's really scary for you, for her. Can you just tell us how she's doing this morning? <clears throat> Fine. It's just she's a little starved a little bit still. Yeah, of course. Mom and dad. Margaret, what did you think when you heard all about this? Did did they come inside and no one told you what happened? Um, they actually called me. I just got out of work. What did you say? What did you and, think? Uh, all I heard was kidnapper and I was on my way. What do you think about your son jumping into action like that? Uh, very brave. What about you, Andrew? Well, he's a good shot. He always has been. <laughs> Did he learn from dad? No, I only use my BB gun. That's all I use. Yeah. He shot his Nerf gun when he was a kid and his BB gun. And then I broke another one, another one, another one because he caught it too much. Uh, what did you say? You Because you used it too much? Yeah, it breaks here sometimes. Yeah. How old were you when you got that first slingshot? Uh, I had um other one. Um, I was like probably seven or eight. It was a old one. The rubber was breaking off, hmm. so I grabbed it and used it. What did you put in it? You run outside. You've got your slingshot. Show us. Show us what you did. What did you? What did you pick up? A rock. So I grabbed like I had a gravel rock in there and a marble right next to it. So I grabbed it, I put it in here, and I just shoot it. Wow. Wow. You know, um, Margaret, one thing that I had read about where you guys live in Alpena, 
Michigan that I thought was so touching is, is people say you don't move there, you grow up there and you grow old there. That's how tight this community is, right? Yes. So what has the community been saying about Owen and what happened and, and coming together around you guys? Bunch of stuff like people want to say I'm hero, bunch of stuff they want to give me stuff. I get a bunch of money for no reason. I'm grateful for all that, but you don't have to give me all that stuff for no reason. I know I did something right, but it's just, it's just me. It's just impressed why other people give me stuff for free. Oh, it's wow. weird. College is expensive, so don't buy more slingshots. Oh, yes. Put it in the bank account and save it, and you deserve it, Owen. Thank you for being a hero for saving your sister. And mom and dad, thanks for raising such a great little boy. We tried our best. Yeah, we did a good job. Thank you guys very much. Love Such them. Such an awesome story. Such an awesome story. I like to think one of my little brothers would do that for me. Would say, would say, he, they would. Big slingshot, bros. <laughs> Get your kid a slingshot, so it's fine. All right, thank you so much thank for joining you. us this morning. Congrats to Owen and his family. So exciting. CNN News Central starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.